Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Tonight we will continue our progress in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of God in Corinth. This church in this Greek city, as we've seen, is struggling. It's struggling with sin. It's struggling with worldliness. They had fallen prey to the temptations of the world and of the evil one. They had given in to all manner of sin. They were, as we have seen, divisive, schismatic, separating. They were proud. They were immature. They were tolerant of sin in their midst, and they were boasting about it. They were robbing and defrauding one another. They were taking each other to court. And as we'll see tonight, they were guilty of sexual sin. And they were further guilty of using genuine freedom in Christ as an excuse for their sin. As is often the case, Satan can tempt believers by twisting Scripture, twisting doctrine in order to introduce confusion in the mind of believers and lure them into terrible sin. And we would be wise not to look down our noses at those foolish Corinthians, thinking that we are above such temptation, such confusion. We must be on guard, as we will see tonight, lest we too fall prey to the temptations of Satan and to the lusts of the flesh. And so let's read together tonight God's word for us, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of our Lord for us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin one person commits is outside of the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought for a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come needing you to speak, asking you to do that which is humanly impossible, but for you, certainly possible. For all things are possible with you. We ask that you would make us into a holy people, that you would show us our sin, and by showing us our sin, show us our need for a Savior, for a Christ. And by showing us Christ, showing us the life that we can have. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. As I prayed through this text in preparation of this sermon, I began to appreciate the diversity of motivations that Paul uses in this text 
to motivate us in our battle of holiness. He uses many different tools, many different arguments, many different angles. And like a skilled pastor, he does so in order to arm us for the battle against Satan and against all manner of temptation. We shouldn't limit ourselves to one or two motivations in our battle for holiness. So, for example... If somebody says, well, why do I need to fight sin? If all you ever say is, well, to glorify God. That's true, but that's reductionistic. The Bible gives us many different motivations, many different weapons in our tool belt against the the temptations of Satan. And we should note and appreciate the many ways that Scripture addresses us, the many ways that we are spurred on in the Christian life in our battle for holiness. And thus tonight, I have drawn from our text... Eight principles, eight short points that I think God, the Holy Spirit, can use within us to help us fight for the battle of holiness. I can't believe Sean's not here to see eight points. I was looking forward to seeing the joy on his face. Number one, first principle, believers are free. Believers are free. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything, will not be dominated by anything. Here, Paul is apparently using some slogans that the Corinthians were using popularly in their language. And that's why your text probably has quotations around the first portions of these verses. All things are lawful for me is in quotes. The believers in Corinth were using these slogans as a means of excusing their behavior. All things are lawful for me, he says, quoting them, and he even repeats it. These quotes may have indeed come from Paul's own lips. Paul was coming out of a pharisaical background, a background of legalism and rules and regulations, and he certainly relished in the fact that he was in Christ free. The doctrine of liberty in Christ, or Christian freedom is one that Paul addresses later in this book. And the doctrine is true and indeed an important part of a Christian's experience. When we come to Christ, we are free indeed. We are free from the condemnation of the law, freed from the opinions of men. We're free from the burden of having to earn our way into heaven and save ourselves from our own sin. Believers are free. That's why Jesus said in John 8, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But what Paul is addressing here was the Corinthian practice of using genuine Christian freedom as then to be a license to sin. And that was the problem. Christian freedom must never condone sin. Yes, Christians are freed from the law, but we must understand the nature of that freedom. We're free from the law as a covenant as a means of securing our access to God and our entrance into heaven, but we're not free from the law as a rule of life. Our freedom was never meant to be a license for us to sin, and that's where the Corinthians had gone off the rail. In fact, the presence of sin in our lives demonstrates that we're not actually free at all. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices or makes a practice of sinning is a slave to sin. If we're in a pattern of sin, if we have an unconfessed pattern of sin and we've given ourselves over to that sin, then we're demonstrating that we were never actually freed from the power of sin. I'm not talking about stumbles in the Christian life. 
We won't be freed from the presence of sin until the Lord returns. But if we're under the power of sin, if we're dominated by sin, particularly sexual sin in this passage, then we have real reason to question whether we have been freed at all. One of the benefits of salvation in Christ is that the power of sin is definitively broken within us. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're free. We're remade in Christ into a new creation. We're new creatures, Paul says elsewhere, with new natures. We are emancipated from enslavement to sin. Believers have real freedom, but it should never be used as a license to sin. But... If that's the case, Paul, how should we think about this freedom? Let's look at a second principle. Christian freedom should be guarded by prudence. Christian freedom should be guarded by prudence. Again, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And while all things might be permissible, allowable, lawful for us, not everything is helpful. We're thinking about our freedom in Christ. We need to think not merely, am I allowed to do this? But also, is this activity helpful? Is engaging in this freedom helpful? Let's take a silly example. Am I free in Christ to eat fried chicken? Yes. Amen. Praise God. But would it be helpful for me to then eat fried chicken for lunch and dinner every day of the week? Certainly not. That would not be helpful to your cholesterol nor your spiritual condition. And when we're, invi- when we're evaluating our activities, our areas of Christian freedom, we need to think, is this helpful? Not merely, is this biblically allowable? I'm not merely talking about sexual sin either. We'll get to that in a moment. What about other activities that might not even have moral overtones? When you're thinking about your hobbies, your participation in athletics, your recreation, your diet, the movies you watch, the clothes you wear. Yes, it may be biblically permissible, but is such things are such things helpful? It may not necessarily be sinful for you to partake and engage in these things, but are they helpful? Do they tend toward your godliness and maturity? Do they tend to the godliness and maturity of those around you? Further, Paul says, while all things might be permissible, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. There are some activities that may be permissible for a Christian to do, but may not be wise for you to do. It may be benign for you to have a cup of coffee or a beer or a slice of pie or watch a show, but if that thing has an enslaving effect upon you, should you engage in it? We need to recognize and have a category in our mind for some activities in life that aren't necessarily sinful, but might have the potential to enslave you, And therefore, you ought to look at such things with the perspective of biblical prudence. If you're enslaved by it, even slightly, then you are no longer in control. That's what enslavement means. You're not the master anymore. Self-control and temperance have been forfeited. You've submitted to a new master. How do you know if you're enslaved by something? Ask yourself some questions. To what do you look 
for joy and satisfaction. And if that thing is taken away from you, how do you react? Do you pout and sulk? Do you get irritable or impatient? So if the absence of that Christian freedom in your life, the absence of that activity, that indulgence, negatively affects your ability to bear the fruit of the Spirit, then you might be enslaved to it. If we take that away from you, that liberty, and you sin more because of it, you might be enslaved. Further, because we don't live a life of Christian freedom in isolation from others, we ought to ask ourselves a few other questions when we're thinking about our wisdom and engaging in anything in the realm of Christian freedom. First question, will my engaging in this freedom, in this area of liberty, impact my witness? Will my freedom impact my witness? Will my engaging in this activity impact my witness for Christ to a watching world? Unbelievers are all around us. And if they see us engaging in this behavior, what will it do? We're not ultimately beholden to the opinions of sinful men. I'm not saying we're at their mercy. But biblical prudence would lead us to willingly give up our, Christ, our Christian freedoms in order to have a more effective witness for Christ. It's part of becoming all things to all people that we might reach some. Second question. How will partaking in this freedom impact the brothers and sisters around me? How will my participation in this activity, which is not necessarily sinful, how will it impact the brothers and sisters around me? We're called to live in Christian community, and if my partaking in my freedom is throwing stumbling blocks in front of other people, then out of a spirit of deference and love for them, I ought to abstain. I ought to be willing to give up my freedoms for the sake of the good of my brothers and sisters around me. We'll talk more about this later in the book, so I'll just leave us there with that one. Third, we ought to ask about our Christian liberties, not merely how they impact our witness and our brothers and sisters, but how will engaging in that freedom impact me? How will engaging in this area of Christian freedom impact me? Will partaking in this liberty enslave me? Knowing who I am and how I am wired and how I operate, will it be conducive to my holiness and my godliness to engage in this area of Christian liberty? Or will it draw my heart and mind away from Christ? Right? Yes, we're free to watch a show or to go to a movie, but if I know that I won't be able to go to sleep tonight until I've benched the entire season, then it might not be good for me to even start with episode one. We need to be guarded by prudence when we're evaluating our Christian freedom. Next, verse 13, Paul gives us another principle, a third principle. Believers should have a resurrection perspective. Believers should have a resurrection perspective. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He will also raise us up by His power. Paul here is using another catchphrase that the Corinthians were apparently adopting. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. They were using the presence of a bodily appetite to legitimize their own indulgence into sexual sin. You can see the argument. The stomach was made for food, Paul. 
The stomach craves food, and so we give it food. God made us that way. Likewise, the body has sexual urges, and so it's not wrong for me to indulge those sexual urges, Paul. In fact, Paul, Mr. Theologian, Adam and Eve were made sexual beings, and God declared those bodies good. And so who are we not to seek to meet the same sexual appetites that God created in man and thus declared good? That sounds downright contemporary. I was born this way, Paul. Can't be wrong for me to act out who I am. But the Corinthians were wrong in at least two places. First, they wrongly equated two different appetites in the body. Yes, God made the stomach for food. But wrongly expressing that urge of hunger leads to all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Just because my body is hungry doesn't mean I can feed it any time with anything that I want. Sure, my body might crave pie and ice cream, but if I fill my stomach with that all the time, it leads to all sorts of problems. That's not the way it should be indulged. It should be appeased. Further, the appetite of the stomach and the sexual appetite are not the same. To go without food brings certain death. To go without appeasing a sexual appetite does not bring certain death. But secondly, Paul seeks to correct their misunderstanding by reminding them of the end. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Your life is not about appeasing your bodily appetites now. If the Lord delays His return, your stomach will end up in the grave, returning to the dust from whence it it came. There is a day of judgment coming, a day of reckoning, and because of that coming judgment, we need to remember that what we do now is significant. Each of our actions can be filtered through the lens of what God will say about it on the last day. Is this freedom something that will be commended or will be condemned on the last day? Is God and His creation honored through this activity or is God and His creation dishonored through my actions? Your life isn't about appeasing your bodily urges now. It's to be used to honor the Lord, keeping in mind that the final day is at hand and we will be judged in the body. Thus, rather than our body being meant for food, Paul reminds the believers of a fourth principle. Your body was meant for the Lord. Your body is meant for the Lord. Verse 13 again, the body is not meant for for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Your body, your physical flesh, is not merely a fleshly puppet for your soul to use in any way you please. You were created as an integrated person, a united body-soul unit, and it lowers the dignity and the goodness of God's creative work to say that your body is merely meant to appease its own appetites. Each person here was fearfully and wonderfully made, Scripture says. And we were made for more than just this life. We were made for something deeper. We were made for communion with God Himself, and that communion is meant to be experienced in a body. That's one reason why Paul spends so much time on the resurrection in chapter 15 of this book. We will not spend eternity as disembodied spirits floating around on clouds. 
We're going to be raised. We're going to have bodies. Those bodies will be renewed. Those bodies are good. They're going to be remade and glorified and perfected on the last day. And thus it's inconsistent, both with how we were created and our final destination, to think that our bodies are merely to be used for our pleasure in this life and then discarded. That's what the Greek philosophers of their day were saying. They were saying that it's the spirit, it's the inside, it's the internal. That's what matters. The body is just going to rot and decay, but the spirit's eternal. Therefore, they would say, do whatever you want with the body, in your body. It's the spirit that matters. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the body was made for the Lord, for holiness. Paul, along with the rest of Scripture, teaches that the body matters, and we need to think carefully about what we do with it. It was made for communion with God and created with dignity and goodness, so act accordingly. I'm tempted to go on a rabbit trail here, but this is significant when it comes to thinking about what we do when people die. We don't need to just adopt a principle of the world that says, well, it's cheaper to cremate a body, so we'll just do that. Our bodies are significant, and it says something significant to burn the body. I don't want to bind consciences here, and the Lord will raise and make bodies out of the dust of the earth, but we give up something, something significant, when we don't think well about the body after death. Sorry, rabbit trail over. Fifth principle. Believers are united to Christ. Believers are united to Christ. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul is here addressing the sexual sin in which the Corinthians were engaging. And he's specifically addressing their deficient view of their union with Christ. If it is true that at the moment of salvation, believers are united to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, then to take the body and unite it in sexual sin with another is to take Jesus' Spirit with you into that sin. It's not as if believers can go about their activities without the presence of Jesus within them. You've been united to Him. You've been made a member of Him. You've been grafted into Him. It's inconceivable that you would so grieve the Holy Spirit by uniting yourself and Him to another in sexual sin. Further, Paul here underscores the immensely spiritual nature of the sexual union. Sex within marriage is a good thing. It's something that God Himself designed, that He delights in its proper expression, as we'll see in the coming weeks in 1 Corinthians 7. But to use the body as a means of engaging in sexual sin outside of a marriage covenant is not merely to do physical harm, but to do spiritual harm as well. The world wants you to think that sex is purely physical. But the world cannot erase the clearly spiritual effects of the sexual union. 
No other activity of the body has such deep ramifications, such deep scars as sexual sin. And if you're united to Christ, then you're dragging Him with you into that sin. We may not be engaging in temple prostitution like the Corinthians were, but every time I fantasize about that neighbor down the street, or that good-looking person at work, or the aerobics instructor at the gym, I'm using my body, my mind, to engage in spiritual adultery. I'm grieving the Spirit of Christ, and I'm forgetting that I'm truly united to Him. Believers, we need to remember our union with Christ next time sexual temptation rears its ugly head. If Christ has so died for me, so forgiven me of my sin, so faithfully sought me out like Hosea, chasing after Gomer in the marketplace of sexual immorality, how can I again drag my faithful bridegroom back into the muck of sexual sin? It should not be so. And the severity of such a situation is compounded by the nature of the sin, which is our sixth point. Sexual sin is unique. Sexual sin is unique. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul here lays down a principle that's crucial for each of us to remember. Sexual sin is not just like every other sin. People ask that question a lot. Are all sins the same? Well, yes and no. They're all the same in the sense that all of them damn you to hell, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But they're not all the same in terms of their consequences and effect. Sexual sin. When somebody engages in sexual sin, it's an inside job. All other sins that somebody engages in, to some extent, are external, but... Sexual sin is not that way. Stealing from someone's on the outside. Yelling at somebody's on the outside. But sexual sin has a deeper, soul-harming element that's unlike the rest of the sins that somebody can commit. I have a book on my shelf, for example, that explains from a physiological perspective the nature of sexual sin and how it literally rewires the brain. We have new neural pathways when somebody engages in habitual sexual sin. It changes us from the inside out. And it speaks not only to the intimate connections between our bodies and our soul, how harming one harms the other, but also speaks to the spiritual nature of God's design in the sexual union. Expressed within the bounds of a marriage covenant, sex is to be a means of uniting a husband and wife in a level of communion that wouldn't have been possible through other means. And thus, when sexual sin is committed outside of the bounds of that marriage covenant, there is a a uniting, the two become one, and then there's a tearing that must take place. Sex outside of marriage is unnatural and deeply harmful. For people to have communion without commitment, to have intimacy without interest in one another, is damaging to the whole person. It damages the soul. It harms the body. It undermines the health of the mind and the heart. It it brings with it all sorts of scars. We need to remember the uniqueness that comes with sexual sin. We need to especially warn our young ones among us. In an age of casual hooking up and fleeting relationships, we need to be clear about the dangers of sexual sin. 
Most of us still bear the scars of our past sin. And a faithful parent would be diligent to warn their children about the peculiar dangers of sexual sin. And to likewise teach them of the goodness of sexual engagement within the bounds of a marriage covenant. Now before I move on to the seventh principle, I want to stop and reflect upon what Paul said in the preceding section. Some of you are like the Corinthians and you are feeling the weight of your past sexual sin. You know that you have engaged in the sins, the exact sins being condemned right here. And perhaps you've even used the same kinds of justifications to rationalize your sins like the Corinthians were doing. God made me that way. I was just acting out who I am. When we're feeling the weight of our sin, we need to remember for ourselves the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. We need to remember that Christ came and he sought out an adulterous bride. He sought out sinners like me and you. He sought out the gomers of this world that were busying themselves in the marketplace of sexual sin. And he redeemed us from slavery to that sin. We're no longer in the marketplace of sin We have been made clean. We have been bought. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are washed, Paul says. You are sanctified. You have been made holy in Christ. You are justified. That means you have been declared righteous. You are no longer seen as unrighteous in God's eyes. You have been forgiven. Remember that when the wounds of past sin start to sting again. And use the pain of that past sin... Let it drive you towards Christ. Let it remind us of the gospel and then let that pain drive us away from temptation again. Remember well the sting of past sin and let it be a deterrent against indulging in the same kinds of sin again. When the temptations of sexual sin rear their heads up again, we need to be like Joseph. Not merely saying no once or twice to Potiphar's wife but vowing not even to be around her, running away from anything that tempts us to sin against such a great God. We don't even need to be in the same room as temptation because of the uniquely damaging nature of this kind of sin. I don't want to play with it. Don't even be in the house with it. One pastor said, "If, if you don't want what the devil is cooking, then don't be in the kitchen smelling his gravy. That's what we need to remember when sexual temptation is around us. We don't want the fruit, so we don't need to be anywhere near the tree. Flee sexual immorality. Remember the words of the Proverbs about keeping your feet far from the path of the adulterous woman in her house. Don't go up to her door. Don't peek in the window. Stay far from her gate. And why must we be not even near sexual sin? Why is it so sinful to... Unite our bodies in sexual immorality? Well, the seventh principle Paul gives us is that believers are a temple. Believers are a temple. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is a principle that Paul previously stated in chapter 3 of this book. He was talking about it collectively, applying it to the whole church. Don't y'all know that y'all are a temple of God? But here he's applying to 
individual believers. For everyone united to Christ, you have been filled individually with the Holy Spirit. That's true, not, collective, not merely collectively as a church, but individually. Don't y'all know that y'all's bodies each are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And that knowledge should be another weapon that we employ to help us in the battle against sin, against temptation. I am not the ultimate owner of this body. This is not my temple. This is God's temple. I am not the arbiter of what is morally permissible. God is. And if God himself dwells in this temple, how could I defile it with sin, especially sexual sin? God's own presence is within me, and to engage my body in sin is to tempt God's holy discipline upon me. God is a loving Father, and He will discipline those whom He loves. And to engage in sin is to tempt God to discipline you in an unpleasant way. That's not what we want to do. Further, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We tempt Him to withdraw His ministering presence. All of the blessings that come along with that. When I willfully engage in sin, I grieve the Holy Spirit, the New Testament says, who will sometimes pull back our sense of His presence, which often results in us feeling very far from God. Sometimes we feel depressed. Sometimes we lose our Christian joy. Sometimes we lose our assurance because we're stubbornly persisting in sin. Indeed, if you're knowingly defiling your body through sin, if you're engaged in an unrepentant pattern of sexual sin, then you have real reason to question your standing before God. Your assurance should be shaken if you're unrepentant about sin. No true child of God would persist willfully in a pattern of sin and expect no ill effects. God will work to preserve His child, even if that means painful discipline. But if I'm running headlong down the path of sin, then be warned that God might just be giving you exactly what you want. He might be giving you over to your sinful desires and thereby proving that you never were a child at all. God's temple is precious to Him. And He will protect its purity. And why is that? That's our eighth principle. Your body was expensive. Your body was expensive. Look at verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You do not own your body. The world tells you otherwise. But it's not true. You are not an autonomous ruler of your own domain. You, both body and soul, are owned by another. God owns you. That means that you're not free to do whatever you like with your body. Your job is to honor the owner, to submit to his clearly revealed will, to live according to his design for your body, to engage in your Christian liberties in a way that loves him and honors him and loves your brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than demanding that everyone else around you honors your freedom in Christ. That's the high calling of a follower of Christ. And as you hear Paul's words, if you find yourself to be guilty... To be guilty of sin, guilty of using your body to gratify the desires of the flesh rather than glorifying the Lord, then know that you stand apart from God. You stand condemned. God sees you. And He doesn't merely see the outside of you. He sees you right to the heart. He knows you at the level of desire. 
even if you haven't yet acted upon them in the body. But also know that our God, the God of Scripture, is not a God without compassion. He has provided a way of escape. He has given His own Son to be the perfect sacrifice for defiled sinners. And He's made a way for His temple to be purified. And that way is narrow. That way is, in fact, exclusive. That way is Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means to be purified, the only means to be forgiven, the only means to escape the wrath of God to come. Come to Jesus Christ tonight and trust in the Son. Trust in Jesus as the perfect, spotless Savior who died so that a blemished bride might be washed, might be made pure. And if you come to Him, you too will be washed. You will see the enormous price that He paid for you. The great ransom that He paid to buy you back from enslavement to sin. And your heart will be warmed by His love for you. And you will be filled with His Holy Spirit. And He will help you battle against sin and strive for holiness in this life. You are not your own. But you have been bought for a price. An enormous price. And so glorify God in your body. Now tonight... We get to glorify God in our bodies by partaking of the physical reminder of His love. And that is the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, like those described in Acts chapter 2, you are devoted to the apostles' teaching found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you're not united to Christ by faith, or if you're outside of fellowship with the local church, then we ask you to let the plates pass lest you wrongfully partake, as Paul warns about in chapter 11 of this book. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this picture that you've given to us at the table of a body broken and a blood shed for our forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would use these elements to build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Table servants, please come.